Hey everyone. First off, we at The Familiar Strange want to acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we are recording this podcast and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples past, present and emerging. Let's go. Welcome to The Familiar Strange. I am your familiar stranger today, Jodie Lee Trembath. Welcome to the podcast, brought to you with support from the Australian Anthropological Society, the Australian National University's College of Asia and the Pacific, and the College of Arts and Social Sciences, brought to you today from the Australian Centre for the Public Awareness of Science, and produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. I am super excited today to be bringing you an interview with Professor Steve Woolgar, Emeritus Professor at the University of Oxford and current Professor of Science and Technology Studies at Linköping University in Sweden. Now, if unlike me, you don't spend your days steeped in the literature of science and technology studies, or STS, know that Steve Woolgar is a giant in this field. If in the last 30 years or so you've heard anyone talking about how scientific facts are actually constructed by scientists in the lab, it's probably because back in the 70s, Steve Woolgar and Bruno Latour did a long-term ethnographic study of science labs and revolutionised the way we think about science and the way we think about facts. I caught Professor Woolgar just before he gave the keynote speech at a conference last year here at ANU, explicitly dedicated to a framework that he, along with co-author Daniel Nyland, created in a book called Mundane Governance. Some context on mundane governance. The word mundane implies things that are so everyday as to be boring, right? And governance is about the rules we live by and how those rules are implemented and enforced. So mundane governance is about the rules that govern the nitty gritty of our everyday lives. Things like which rubbish goes into what bin or who can drive in the T2 lanes at what times of day or where you can and can't park in your own neighbourhood. The little things that make up the fabric of our lives. You may notice, though, that when you're talking to people, these mundane governance issues are the things that upset people the most, the things that really, really make them angry. Those little rules and those various personal reactions give us clues about what a society's values are or how values differ amongst different groups within a society. My desire to park where I want and the fury I feel when I'm not allowed to and the satisfaction I feel when I do it despite the rules, these are all tied to my belief in my right to make decisions for myself, my belief in autonomy, and the ability of citizens to be responsible towards each other on a case-by-case basis, using our judgment, rather than a blanket rule to cover all situations. So, as Steve points out in his book, mundane governance is actually a profound question of political philosophy. We talk about how people's feelings towards mundane governance of their lives differs across different cultures. We talk about how the media, especially in countries like the UK and Australia, stokes the flames of people's outrage over the regulation of their lives and can help us to imagine good guys and bad guys in an epic mundane governance battle. We talk about how an anthropologist sets about researching the mundane and making tiny everyday moments and artefacts the centre in these epic battles for the societal upper hand. And we always come back to the importance of how the little things, the invisible things, things that are intended to fade into the background of our lives, can actually come to define them. So here it is, me and Professor Steve Woolgar 
talking about mundane governance. like to go back to the past and I, I'd love to hear how this idea started because I'd love to give our listeners an idea of what mundane governance is and how the um, concept kind of works in a practical sense as well um, and I think that might come through in possibly its origin story. So how did you how did you get into this idea? Okay well um, well a number of number of avenues came together one is that in science and technology studies, which is where I, I position myself, there's been a long history of looking at the products of science or the products of technology and trying to develop an analytically sceptical perspective on those things. So you say, with a scientific claim, which appears very objective, you approach that by saying, well, actually, that's the upshot of a whole series of complex social and political processes. It's contingent. It could have turned out differently and so on. And so I come from that sort of tradition and it just seemed to me that um, it would be interesting to apply that to um, a much more basic form of object and technology. And that's all those things that we take for granted every day. So it's road signs, it's traffic lights, it's um, instructions to, to recycle. And um, I was very interested in the ways in which we are increasingly encouraged to organize our lives in relation to these very, very ordinary objects. Mm. And so that's where the project began. And I think the idea of mundane piggybacked a little bit on one of my heroes in in ethnomethodology is a guy called Mel Polner, who wrote a book called Mundane Reasoning. Mm. And it's a very fine book and a very fine introduction to ethnomethodology. Not a lot of people know about it. And basically, the notion of, uh, of calling it mundane reasoning is to demystify the whole idea of, uh, well, reasoning and say working out how to do stuff takes place on a day-to-day basis in ordinary interactions between people trying to make sense, trying to make their way through the day. So his, his notion of this is mundane reasoning. And I thought, well, the notion of regulation and control as applied to ordinary everyday objects we could use that term too. So I called it uh, mundane governance, partly um, in, in a kind of uh, acknowledgement of his notion. But what, what the two projects share is a demystification. It's about bringing down to earth all these abstract social science concepts as we do with science, you know, ideas like proof and facts and, and theories and so on. You can re-specify those as the practical work which scientists do. The same with think ideas like governance and control and regulation. You can re-specify that as the ordinary stuff that people get on with in their lives. And mundane um, has a nice, very nice word because mundane has this dual sense. Mundane means, on the one hand, the ordinary, the routine, the boring, the trivial, the run-of-the-mill, the taken-for-granted, all that stuff. But it also has an um, etymological root, um, mundane comes from the word mundus in Latin, which means world. So you get a sense that the mundane is not just ordinary and boring and trivial. It's of the world. It is just the way the world is. It is just the way things are. So it's a kind of, you know, it's, it's a state which cannot be reduced any further because it's just the way things are. And I'm very interested in people's um, apprehension of that kind of bottom line it's just the way it is. So I should say for the listeners that uh, Steve gave an amazing keynote to the conference last night and 
He also did The Wholesome Show uh, the night before and for listeners who are familiar with The Wholesome Show, it's another podcast produced out of the ANU. They had beer. Uh, I have to admit I have not provided Steve with beer. I'm feeling a little bit bad about it but it is 9am and so I've got a little bit of material to work with because I've already heard Steve speaking about this quite a lot and I want to pick up on a couple of the themes that you talked about in that last night. So one of the things you said on The Wholesome Show was that this is also personal for you, that it, it came out of a personal experience. Can, and you talked a little bit about that in the keynote as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your uh, your traffic fine? Oh, sure. No, this was um, good fun and, and quite coincidental. I mean, the project was, was running and we had already decided to study speed cameras and parking and traffic regulation. And then by coincidence, one night after a college dinner in Oxford, as you do, you drive, you, up, do. you drive up the Woodstock Road and I got caught by the damn camera. And I was first very annoyed and then realised that, of course, like all everything else in mundane governance, to study it, you were already, always already part of the stuff that you're interested in and studying. And this was the case here. I got caught by the, by the camera. I got sent a notice by the police asking me to confirm who was the driver. Uh, when I did that, I then got another letter from a different organisation inviting me to take part in a speed awareness course. I don't know if they if they happen in Australia. I, I've heard that they do in some states, but um, I'm not so sure. And, I don't um, speed, so I wouldn't know. Uh, right. <laughs> You're so lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was invited on this course, and the deal is you do the course, you pay for the course, then you do not uh, receive a fine for the speeding, and you do not have points set against your, your driving licence. So uh, I went on the course and it turned out to be a fantastic opportunity for um, ethnographic observation mm. over the course of uh, four hours or so on. I did um, hesitate for a little to figure out whether the cost of this course should be charged to the research budget. <laughs> um, that was a kind of, you know, because I thought, well, you know, this is an expense incurred in, in the process of undertaking this uh, research. Um, in the end, I decided not to. So, <laughs> so did you have to get ethics approval for that? No, I didn't. No, we're, we're talking a little while ago that this, um, that this started. And that was way before the uh, more focused attention to ethics had really come into, into force. Mm. I think we're a little bit obsessive about the ethics process in Australia. I think um, it does vary a lot. It does vary a lot. I know um, a lot of my European colleagues are just like, you have to do what? Why? <laughs> and I think uh, the fear of the ethics process is uh, a great <laughs> example of mundane governance, right? The actual form itself is so yes. imbued with social relations yes. and and we conform ourselves in our research in that moment to be what the ethics form needs us to be. That's exactly right. I mean, it's a very smart observation. And, and we are then subject to all sorts of typologies and categorizations. A very good colleague of mine in Berkeley, who's an anthropologist, decided to, because he wanted to do some investigations, ethnographic investigations with his students, he found a way of subverting the ethic, ethical clearance by relabeling his course performance art. And if the students were doing performance art, you don't have to have ethical approval. That was a way of sort of you know, managing around um, uh, the, the mundane uh, management of, um, of ethics. So this is something we debate a lot in The Familiar Strange, um, this idea of resistance versus daily negotiation. And um, Simon, who you met 
uh, on the first day of the conference, he was doing the um, presentation about gender segregation in Iran. Mm. He disagrees with the idea of resistance. He thinks that we don't resist things. We just go about our lives. We negotiate our day-to-day existence. And to call that resistance is sort of taking it to a higher level that can't be attributed to the mundane. What do you think of that? Resistance, it seems to me, is a vital tool in revealing how mundane governance works. So to just go along with it uh, means you possibly miss a lot of the dynamics of what's happening. So, so precisely for that reason, in many parts of the study, we evolved protocols which were resisting and or provoking reactions from the agencies of mundane governance, precisely to expose what was being taken for granted and how the the processes were working. Can you give us an example? Well, I suppose my favourite example is the liquids rule, unfamiliar to Australians who only travel internal on flights, because in that situation, uh, there are no explosive liquids in Australia. No, we just drink them all. (laughs) (laughs) But in Europe and America, uh, at least, and many other countries, there are these rules that you're not allowed to take a liquid container of more than 100 millilitres on board the aircraft with you. Even domestically? Even domestically in the UK, yeah. And uh, that came into force in about 2004, and it's still in place, although... It's become a little more relaxed in some in some some airports. So I notice you don't have to go through two such inspections in in Schiphol in Amsterdam anymore. It's just just the one. But anyway, so we evolved this protocol that we would put in our hand luggage um, a very large container, um, say seven fifty mil one liter plastic bottle containing about twenty mil of water, something like that, that would be discovered by the clerk. And then we'd, we'd get into a conversation about why it was not allowed. The clerk would say, you're not allowed to take this on the plane. And, and I would say, well, why not? And they said, well, it's more than 100 millilitres. And I said, well, yeah, but what's wrong? Because if you look at the container, it's only got 20 millilitres in it. And he said, yeah, yeah, but it's the rule. And I said, well, why, why is, is there this rule? And it's just the rule. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that this isn't a, a kind of philosophical um, argument because you're, you're standing there in a line with a whole bunch of other people who are anxious to get through security. They're anxious about security, supposing there really are explosive liquids in, in somebody's um, luggage in the line. And they see this, this awkward, uh, bloody social scientist um, sort of arguing the toss uh, with the security clerk at the beginning. So it, one thing you notice about this is that they even contest or resist is actually quite a stressful thing to do. I mean, as part of the study, I tried at one point to take some photographs of Dan having his luggage inspected and, and all hell broke loose. There were three, oh, yeah. three uh, rather large um, uh, security staff were onto me immediately and demanding that I delete the photographs and, and so on. So really it's, it's also kind of about surveillance. So I was thinking it's, it's partly about self-censorship, but like what would be the result of you having photographs of this experience? Well, I think they're sensitive to the, you know, it, they're sensitive to the idea that if this is a business in which they might detect terrorists, then clever terrorists would want to get a reconnaissance about how the system works. They would want to get information about who the people are who are involved. Um, I don't know, maybe you'd end up, you know, blackmailing a security agent if you knew their identity and so on. Mm. I mean, it's all terribly hypothetical and I, I don't know 
where they're getting this advice from. But it, it plays out in, uh, in other situations too. So you might recall right at the end of my lecture last night, I showed some photographs where I was trying to photograph parking wardens. And uh, they were busy putting tickets on cars along the road, and I'd wanted just to photograph them because I thought that was useful information or interesting images to have for the for the book and so on. And uh, they also went crazy. And mm. uh, they um, it was a fabulous photo. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, my last photo in the lecture is is um, these people kind of approaching me and in a menacing way, and um, I had to uh, I had to withdraw. And um, yeah. And I think it's some similar kinds of reasoning that it's a very mundane act to try and check somebody's bag or to put a parking ticket on them, but. The system at work, uh, which makes all that possible, um, is very vulnerable to people documenting it and producing information about it and so on. Mm. So, I mean, I, I, it, it was a big insight for me because I realized that, again, although this stuff is very ordinary, very day-to-day, very unremarkable and so on, it's actually quite dangerous too. Mm, yeah, for you and also... It, it's kind of imbued with life and death consequences, like particularly with the airline rules. Um, you, you talked about, you know, getting onto the plane accidentally once with your 20 mils of, of water in the bottom of the bottle and having a conversation with the people beside you and then kind of bringing out the bottle and going, yeah, and look at this. They didn't even catch this one and the people completely freaking out yes. as if yes. now this object yes. becomes an object of power and the system has broken Yes, and now we are, we're all screwed. Yes. This is a problem. Yes. And, and, and the, I think the, the important feature of that is that it's the contrast between the ordinary, trivial, everyday object, which does no harm to anyone, is unremarkable. That being transformed into uh, an object of potential terror. I mean, that's why we use this expression, mundane terror. It's the ordinary, unremarkable, which is transformed into something which is um, absolutely not unremarkable and potentially threatening. my own research, I think a lot about systems and I study academics and I study universities and I often kind of question whether the systems actually have the most power, more power than the humans. And I had this one particular example when I was on fieldwork where this particular professor had been asked by his academic manager if he would supervise a PhD student. And he said, okay, but I haven't been registered on the system yet. And the manager said, well, register yourself. And he said, well, it, it doesn't seem to accept me. Go ahead, try it again, see how you go. So I'm, I'm sitting behind him watching all of this happening, right? And so he's putting the information into the system and he clicks the button and the system gives him a, a reply saying, uh, no, you're not eligible. Now he had all of the criteria. He was a professor, he was you know, in every way eligible and he'd been asked to do it by his boss. But the system said no. And eventually he rang the IT department and they were like, oh, it's a problem. It's, it's not a problem with the um, IT system. It's a problem with the criteria that the, has been provided by the department. So you need to call the department. So he rings the department and he says, I, I've been asked to supervise this student. I need to put myself into this system. And they were like, oh, but the system says that you're not eligible. And he's like, but I am eligible and my 
boss has asked me to do this. Oh, no, sorry, you can't. And so he couldn't supervise the PhD student because the system said no, even though all the humans said yes. <clears throat> yes, yes. Is it too much of a stretch to say that a system can have that much power? Oh, not at all. No, I think that's exactly what's happening in your in, in your example. And uh, again, the the frustration is because having delegated this the ability to categorize or, 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 or give confirmation to the system, uh, then it's not doing what any, anyone uh, would recognize as being the... We had a discussion the other night, didn't we, about the power of parody, irony, mm. humor. And that, that particular instance is very much the target of parody in, in a, a UK comedy show where people go into into offices or travel agents or um, social security or whatever and they ask a question and the clerk behind the desk um, says hmm yes and taps into keyboard and and they're all waiting and she says um, and this happens every week she says hmm computer says no <laughs> and that's it you know then they're left distraught and uh, and I think the parody of that situation really captures the difficulties and the frustrations. For sure, it seems like one has delegated to the extent that the system now has more power than you do. Can I change change direction for a moment? I was listening to uh, your episode with The Wholesome Show and there was a point where you were explaining the research that you do and Will Grant said to you, um, but just to play devil's advocate, Recycling has the potential to make things better and, you know, uh, speed cameras have the potential to make things safer. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, all of these things, they may be mundane, they may be a bit irritating, but should people be irritated by it? And your response was, well, as an anthropologist, it's not my job to make a judgment over whether or not people should or should not feel a certain way. My job is to unpack whether or not they feel a certain way. Do you find that when you're communicating your your results and your theorizing around mundane governance, do people get it? Or are they like looking for answers? Well, I mean, I, I think they are looking for answers. And the, the, the potential of those kinds of exchanges is that you can show them that looking for answers is, is possibly not the best way to go. As an anthropologist, I would resist saying speed cameras are, are good for us or they're not good for us. Of course, they have the potential to be good for us in, in the sense that a lot of people do a lot of work producing these things and there's a lot of positive energy behind that, that whole endeavour. But I think the job of the uh, anthropologist is to make people think again about the assumptions which are going into that. And so it's very important to resist, resist again. Uh, It's very important to resist being drawn into a a yes, it is good, no, it's not good type of debate. And and you want to unpack that and say, well, you know, who's who's saying it's good and why are they saying it's good? And uh, how do people judge what counts as good and so on? And very often in those kinds of outreach situations, if the communication is good and the relationship's good with the people out and indeed you know, fascinating to work with people in industry and so on. You can get them to see things which they hadn't thought about before mm. and they can become really grateful for that. I mean, we have a very poor ability to figure out what it is that people outside the academy actually want from us. And I, I always find that uh, a fascinating gap. So I am uh, a relentless ethnographer in, and try to be impartial and reflexive uh, and symmetrical about 
everything I, I study is not easy. It's, it takes hard work. It's not just something you can do. But I think it turns out to be uh, enormous value in that. Speaking of the public, you, you told a story last night about a lady, I think her name was Lynette, and it was a newspaper article about a single mum who had used the wrong bin bags and she her, her bin bags got attacked by wardens um, and ripped apart and um, then she got fined. And there was this kind of rhetoric throughout the article about everyday people. Yes. And it's a, a term that's been used constantly in this conference, everyday people and everyday ideas. Mm. And I wonder who is not an everyday person? Yes. Who who are we not talking about? Is this class? Is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I, d- I don't know. I mean, I think that the, the interest of that episode and episodes like it is that uh, it's not so much whether or not the people involved are of a particular class. Um, it's how they are portrayed in relation to ordinary stuff and ordinary technologies. So um, in that particular example, in order to bring off the idea that the council who um, find Lynette were really stupid. They have to make her out to be um, an innocent victim. And and what was particularly interesting for me was that to render somebody as an innocent victim in that situation, um, you have to portray the bin bag at the heart of the story as just an ordinary mundane object. Everyone knows what the bloody hell a bin bag is. Mm. You know, it's an unremarkable thing. And yet, she's been fined money for using the wrong kind of bin bag. Mm. So it's a story in which the identity of the bin bag is as important as the identity of Lynette. And so Lynette comes across, and as you say, the references to her being a single mother of four, just trying to feed and clothe her kids. All those phrases are very important there. And they're phrases which are used to establish and uh, sustain her innocence uh, in the face of the the other, the contrast characters who are the evildoers, the agents of the council who who find her and so on. And you need that villain in the story as well. Yeah, you need that contrast uh, because then the way that the story is organised is that everything that happens is readable in terms of the contrast. Uh, Lynette does this and the council does that and the agents do this and Lynette's family do that. And if you can promote and sustain and build that contrast, then you can see how stupid it is to find somebody overusing the wrong bin bag. And it would never happen in another country because, you know, they wouldn't be so ridiculous in somewhere like Sweden or Germany or, you know, these idealised kind of, particularly the Scandinavian countries, I think. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of theme that came out of last night's discussion as well was the idea that, you know, we look at Germany and Germany is efficient, so this would never happen in Germany, but mm. it's the way it is here and that's fixed because of all of these different social actants working together and so there's nothing we can do now because it's yes. just all or, or more, that we really need to do better. We really do need to catch up with Germany mm. or the rest of Europe's way ahead of us. You know, so uh, there's, that, there's that, those sorts of contrasts too. I mean, are you aware of any research that's come out of Germany using mundane governance? Does <laughs> it, do they not have mundane governance because they're so... Efficient? Uh, no, they definitely have mundane governance, uh, and the story that's told in the UK is that their mundane governance is more efficient. You know, that is oh, right. <laughs> better. But if you're asking, um, have there yet been any studies of how mundane governance is done in in Germany and so on? I don't know those. No, no. 
listeners, let us know. <laughs> we we want to hear about these studies in Germany. I have a friend, um, a very good friend who's German, who tells me that uh, when she compares the media in Germany to the media in Australia, she gets really frustrated because Australia focuses on the individual and Germany focuses on the big picture. And I wonder if that's related. The characterizations of other seem very uh, powerful and very gripping in the context of contrasting how it is in our own experience in, in the UK versus how it could be, how mm. it could be otherwise. And so you get invocations of other entities, Europe, um, Germany, uh, Japan. I mean, usually the contrast is is unfavorable to the England, but that's the point of saying it could be done better. So it's a point of the complaint. Yeah, Australians, are, you know, they're free and easy and we've got all this bloody um, control. And uh, this would be one sort of story, I imagine, <laughs> that, that would have I some traction. I think there's a whole lot of Australians that would be listening to this going, free and easy. Are you kidding me? Yeah, Not yeah, even allowed yeah. to cross the road. No, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, okay. So can we turn now to your actual experience of doing this field work? Because mm. I, I'm fascinated by the positions you put yourself in in order to get this data, but also just the what was the everyday mundane experience of doing this field work? Well, it's terrific. I mean, it's a terrific topic because it's something that uh, when you start talking about, everyone recognises what you're talking about because it's in their own experience. Um, so, you know, previous work that I've done on, um, you know, high-tech technologies or, or esoteric science, um, you know, in a lot of my early career was doing um, anthropological studies of scientists in laboratories and stuff like that. Um, but the science they're dealing is not everyone's experience. And, and mundane governance uh, is certainly quite different from that. So uh, that that's been a very strong and appealing feature of the feature of the whole study on a practical level i mean it was just marvelous to discover that as i went about my everyday business and and dan did too uh, we were engaging in the very topics which we were trying to study we talked earlier about me getting caught caught speeding during the study i recall that on one other occasion i was caught speeding taking recycling to the dump, oh. you know. So, I mean, it's that sort of thing. I recall driving into a parking lot and one of the drivers coming out stopped his car as I was going in, wound down his window and passed across to me his parking chit, oh, you know. That's nice. Uh, which is very nice. And uh, what he said to me is he gave me this, um, this parking ticket was, well, the council keeps encouraging us to recycle. And so I thought that was really that was that was kind of really cute and uh, and you know and I I I became more attuned to how I had been till then trying to uh, recycle stuff in various categories and you've got a kind of awkward bit of metal but you don't know if the people will really take it if they think it's metal so how do you disguise it you know do you wrap it up in other stuff to put in the in in um, we did some observational work at the recycling centers which are amazing amazing uh, situations of, of mundane governance and we found that uh, in order to get permission to be there and observe uh, we had to be certified by the council and uh, when we got that set, when we got the approval, we were then required to wear these these yellow high vis jackets, I guess out of some health and safety issues or something. So uh, Dan and I and one of our assistants, Yumin, were sort of walking around the the recycling place, and uh, we discovered, much to our surprise, that we had been elevated to experts. So that just walking around in the high vis jacket, uh, people would come up and say batteries. 
and we would have to have to sort of say, well, yeah, uh, battery. I think they go in that skip over there, just the third one to the third so one. So you to the felt left. like you needed to imbue the jacket with its appropriate yes, yes. Expertise. Well, we felt we had to give advice because right. people are asking for it. And, uh, <laughs> so there's a really interesting way in which, you know, unlike a lot of other topics and studies. You get drawn into business that you're that you're studying, and of course we we do a lot of uh, reflection on our own experiences, like the speed awareness course. Um, you will see Dan's uh, recollection of his attempts to contest parking tickets and so on. So it's certainly uh, an area of research experience quite unlike others in that um, it's very ethnographic, but it's ethnographic in a way of one's own strange tribe. Insider and, and ethnography is an insider ethnography. It's a kind of inverted um, ethnography in a way. I think we've actually run out of time, but that was so interesting. And thank you so much for coming on our show. It's, it's a great pleasure. It's lovely to talk to you. That was it, me and Professor Steve Woolgar. Today's episode was produced by me, Jodie Lee Trembath, with help from the other familiar strangers, Ian Pollock, Julia Brown, and Simon Theobald. Our executive producer is Ian Pollock. Subscribe to the Familiar Strange podcast. You can find us on iTunes and all the other familiar places. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review with your likes and dislikes. It helps people find the show and it helps us make the show better. You can find the show notes, including a list of all the books and papers mentioned today, plus our blog about anthropology's role in the world at thefamiliarstrange.com. And if you want to contribute to the blog or have anything to say to me or the other hosts of this program, email us at submissions at thefamiliarstrange.com or tweet at TFS Tweets or look us up on Facebook or Instagram. Our music's by Pete Dabro, and special thanks today to Nick Farrelly, Elisa Asmolovskia, Alina Rizvi, Will Grant and Maud Rowe. And thanks for listening. See you in two weeks. And until next time, keep talking strange. <laughs>